Welcome to this episode (laughs) of Beyond the Bulletin. This is going to be a fun one because we are interviewing someone, right, Stephen? We are, and I think that it's going to be, I think it's it's just funny how God works, right, that we're going to interview a doctor, and I... And sick. Can you hear the nasaliness? <laughs> yeah, I can. Uh, it makes your deep voice yeah. so much. Yeah. Uh, so no, it's the. Uh, <laughs> you got full Barry White on us. I now. did. It's nice. the allergies. You know, uh, as as we all know here in Houston, in March everything turns yellow. I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yep, the yellow yeah. death. All of my kids' noses are running so hardcore. Yes. It is awful. Yeah, my nose isn't running. I just I just sound like Barry White. I came so. up with this joke when I was in middle school. You ready for this? Oh, boy. My nose is running faster than O.J. Simpson down the 405. Wow. Because I lived right off the 405 when O.J. was making his infamous drive. There we go. But we are, not to be, <laughs> not to go on about stupid jokes, wow. we have actually a guest here. Do you want to introduce a fine guest here? I do. We have Dr. Gary Lambert with us. Um Dr. Gary, would you like to introduce yourself to the people? Sure, pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I uh, am a physician. I am an internal medicine, pulmonary, and critical care physician. Uh, My wife and I moved down to the area about four years ago almost now uh, from Colorado. Be closer to family. Uh, We're uh, parishioners at St. Anthony's and uh, uh, love it here. I have been working back and forth in Colorado week on, week off for the last uh, few years. And in uh, uh, November, sort of cut ties from the corporate hospital medical world to come down, be here with family full time, and uh, to uh, set up an outpatient practice here. So Awesome. Wow. Yeah. You were commuting between here and Denver? Oh, yes. Wow. Puts so my been... commuting from... Sugarland to here to shame <laughs> from a few years ago. Yeah, now your commute's from two forty two. Yeah, so. the Costco. <laughs> awesome. Well, really happy to have you. Um, now, Doctor Gary came into my office a couple weeks ago, and we began planning to um, have him on for a very specific reason. And this is um, two of the big issues I think that the scandal has brought to light. Is well, the main issue is our complete lack in moral formation, right? And so, we began offering a morality class here that just generally lays out the principles of Catholic morality, which are so fundamental to following Christ in the gospel. It is not a legalistic thing, it's not just a bunch of rules, but it truly does offer guidance and wisdom. But at the same time, uh, I would say the two issues are human sexuality and medical or bioethical issues. Um, a lot of Catholics just seem to be confused or they just go with the culture, go with their gut, which is formed by the culture, about these big moral issues. Uh, some people don't even regard them as big moral issues. We just go and do them regardless. And so um, Dr. Gary came into my office and said, I want to talk about end-of-life issues. And this is so crucial. Well, it's it's also crucial, too, because one of the other things that – um, has been happening, you know, s- almost not even slowly anymore, particularly because the scandal, things like that, every time something like that happens, it we're kind of losing a little bit of our, our moral credibility. Yeah, our voice. Our yeah. voice, yeah. And and it's really, it's a difficult thing because Catholicism, particularly in the Western, Western world, has been so integrated with uh, the advancement of medicine and modern medicine and, and the hospital system, all these different things. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we've really got to reclaim this. Just like we talk about it so much, like we have to reclaim uh, the culture through, like, our art and our evangelization. Well, this is another aspect of it uh, where we can do that as Catholics. And so I'm excited to have Dr. Gary here. Yeah. So what do you want to talk about today? I think our our first big thing is what is wrong from your point of view? What is wrong with how we're practicing medicine today? 
I think the trend has been slow over the last several years and almost insidious, as you had talked about. Um, we are what I call a biomedical model where we concentrate primarily on the physical nature of medicine. And the technology of medicine certainly is accelerating faster than we can uh, keep up sometimes. Uh, but it limits a lot of what we do to uh, to the physical alone. And in my years of uh, experience and maturity in the field right now, I've realized that that is only a portion of what really is wrong with a lot of my patients, that the root cause of disease often is deeper than that. Uh, emotional, spiritual issues that uh, in the present milieu we're really not able to address adequately. And I think uh, physicians in general have sometimes uh, lost that attentiveness to the to that part of care. Yeah. One of the big things that I took a sexual medical morality class at Franciscan as an undergrad, it was required. It was one of a couple theology classes that was required for all bio and pre-med people. And, um, it was really interesting because here you have a bunch of nurses and pre-med people wanted to become doctors and whatnot in the classroom with a bunch of theology majors. It was a 400 level theology class. And the big thing about that, that we had to read was, understanding like it was like a philosophy of medicine and a philosophy of the sciences and you realize like the the modern turn the turn from the middle ages to the modern world was an explicit rejection of what we call of Aristotle's four causes and the four causes I'm not going to go into them very deeply but the idea of the (laughs) material you're welcome the agent cause like what is or who is doing this the material cause what is it made from like a statue the agent causes the guy building it. The material causes the material it's made from. The formal cause is the image or shape that you want to have. And the end cause is the intention behind it. And Aristotle thought you could never know a thing, and Thomas Aquinas along with him, you could never know a thing unless you could answer those four causes. And today, because of our modern – the way we view the sciences and technology and thus medicine, we only kept the material and the agent cause, and we got rid of the formal and the final cause, meaning – we don't, we don't care why it's there. We don't care about the why of a thing's nature. We only care what it's made of and how we can destroy it or how we can build it up. You described the philosophy of medicine, and uh, there was a, a physician. Uh, it was at Georgetown, but he also sat on the philosophy department there. Uh, Edmund Pellegrino, Dr. Pellegrino, spent his career He's awesome. Yeah, he's awesome. looking at uh, the philosophy of medicine, thinking that medicine really – is unique enough that there really is a unique philosophy to medicine to boil it down into a small, is that he, he describes it as the physician patient relationship is being the key to that philosophy. Well, why? One of it is that when I'm ill as a patient, I, I have no more recourse. I have to go to someone who can, take me in my need. The physician on the other side has offered himself in total, ideally, to give you his best, to do whatever that takes. And that relationship is 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 unique uh, in, in, yeah. in many ways. Um, I think on the one side, patients have also came, come to the uh, physical model thing. Well, the only thing that is health is for me to be symptom-free of everything. Yeah. The other side, from the physician's standpoint, is, well, I can help you with the medical stuff, but don't talk to me about the emotional 
spiritual side, which may be contributing or the core cause of the disease. And so we're stuck in the physical realm of medicine trying to make the bigger picture work. And I think it's failing us a bit. Wow, that's powerful. Well, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there's a difference in like my parents' experience of their doctors growing up. Uh, maybe not now as much, but like what you're talking about of, of the, when you go to a doctor's office, oftentimes there's just, it's kind of very, um, it's very, uh, cut and dry, you know, like the experience of going in with your doctor. And sometimes as a patient, I know I felt like, does this, you know, do, do they actually even care about me as a patient, which is, is difficult. Not, you know, I, I don't mean that to disparage because I know there's obviously a lot of doctors, a lot of physicians, um, and, and medical personnel, even within our parish, but, uh, that, that do care, but because of the kind of what you're talking about, the corporate environment that has yeah, been created the culture, around this, the, the system, culture, yeah. that's, the insurance system too. There's so many things that are put in the way between that relationship. And the funny story with Dr. Pellegrino, uh, he's amazing. When Dr. Gary came into my office, we were talking and I was trying to desperately to impress him that I know some of this stuff wasn't really working. <laughs> and, uh, I, I had, when I was at Franciscan, I attended the first bioethics class at the graduate philosophy level. And that class launched a whole concentration at Francisco, so they have a whole bioethics major now. And Dr. Pellegrino was one of the expert physician philosophers that we had come. And we all sat around, and this kind of bridges more into the specifics of what we're talking about. But, I mean, here is this old dude. He had, like... He was originally rejected from what was it Columbia? Where, where did he get his medicine? I think it was Columbia, but he was rejected because his name was too ethnic because he was Italian, and they wow. told him to change his name and reapply. And I mean, he has like crazy stuff. But here, here's this faithful Catholic trying to do his best in this world. But we got on the topic of DNR, do not resuscitate. And my professor, who was only a philosopher, right, Doctor Lee, amazing guy. Um, he came at it from the perspective of, well, we're pro-life. You ne- it should be unethical to say, do not resuscitate. Like if someone's at the point of death, how many times do you need to, to, to do that? And Dr. Pellegrino looked at me and goes, you have never seen a resuscitation, have you? And he said, it is not immoral to have a do not resuscitate for a, as a Roman Catholic. He's like, really? I thought we should always strive for life. And so I brought that up with Dr. Gary. Dr. Gary's like, I love Dr. Pellegrino. So we started talking about that. But let's talk about yeah, some let, of these misconceptions. Let, hold on. Can, sure. you, can, yeah. you, before you, can you explain like that specific? Because I think I get it, but I want to make sure I yeah. understand. And I know if I, if I am not getting it, there's probably someone else that doesn't get it either. So explain that Dr. Pellegrino's philosophy on the do not resuscitate. From someone who's never yeah. seen that. Sure. You know, interesting, we're living this out in the state of Texas right now. There is a, uh, a law out there called TADA, T-A-D-A, or the Texas Advanced Directive Act. It was uh, initiated, I believe, in 1999, but it's, uh, it's an interesting law in that the Texas Right to Life and the uh, Texas College of Catholic Bishops are on the opposite sides of this, interestingly enough. The idea is that if someone is in a critical situation, a physician feels that it is futile care, that the physician can then uh, opt to withdraw life support. The, The Texas Advanced Directive Act uh, suggests that uh, you can't withdraw life support just because it's futile. Life is sacred. you got to do everything you can, and it has to go before an ethics committee meeting. You have to have an initial 10 days and whatever. 
I've lived in the middle of this in a critical care setting, and I see both sides of this street. Uh, certainly, we are pro-life. We are we we want to embrace, and the church teaches we do everything we can to to increase health and be healthy as best we can. On the other side, it also claims we are not obligated to feudal care. We don't have to do that. And as you mentioned, Mike, uh, resuscitation is a brutal, brutal event. And yeah, for those of us on the outside, we all we see is a handful of chest compressions, and then a guy looks at the camera and goes, no, and then smashes him one more time down on the chest, and then they cough and come back to life. Is that what? It's the TV version of resuscitation, <laughs> and it's, but it, it really is very difficult. But this is what the... Texas Advanced Directive Act is, I think, trying to do is legislate two sides that don't get it. One side is that, you know, life is everything, and no matter what, doctors are, don't understand that. And then doctors over here are saying, and I've been in this situation where it's clear this person is not going yeah. to make it. They're on life support. They're on tubes and lines. They're in bed suffering, but the patient gets to go away. The patient's family gets to go away. Yeah. And it is two sides because they've lost a common understanding of life and end-of-life issues that both sides are missing the point. Yeah, because the fear for the Right to Life organization is you're going to give the power to euthanize into the hand of one doctor who could be crazy and be like, you know what, I want these organs. Uh, let's just kill all these people, right? Like that's the, that's the like, it's just the Netherlands coming to Texas kind of reaction. But at the same time, by not engaging in the practice of medicine, and this was the point that Dr. Pellegrino made to my professor, he said, you've never seen a, uh, a resuscitation and how brutal it can be. And he told the story of there was a woman whose family was like, I don't care what it takes or what it costs, you keep her alive. And they did five uh, attempts to – five different – it was like every hour they were doing it. And he said every one of her ribs were broken. Lungs were punctured. Like, all the things that we were trying to do to keep her alive. If In the end, it killed her, too, us trying to keep her alive. He said, and we knew, and we did it, you know, it was five times in a single day. So this woman was just, I mean, she was gone. Every medical professional knew this woman's life was gone. She was solely sustained by the machines. And, yeah, and so he was like, so that's why Dr. Lee has practicums now where you have to go on uh, – uh, on these calls with doctors, you got to ride in ambulances. You got to be in the emergency room and intensive care units and physically watch what the price is to do this stuff. Yeah, I agree, and that is not an uncommon scenario. Yeah, uh, living that—that that is not an uncommon scenario in a critical care setting. I think part of the concern has been that physicians, in general, um, have lost have lost a position of or a perception that they are for the patient, yeah. you know, really for the patient and for life. We, the biomedical model has put us into a uh, an environment where uh, physical outcome or success is the only, is the only real success. Mm. And in general, I think it's wrong. Uh, there's a broader, bigger picture than that. And these aren't bad doctors. They're just in a bad environment, a regulatory insurance, governmental kind of environment where uh, they're having to change the mode of practice and, yeah. and I think sometimes miss um, 
the ability to see a, a bigger picture and families, I think, perceive that. So. Yeah. So can we talk about specific end of life um, issues? Like you mentioned advanced directives. What would be your advice for Catholics who are getting up in age and are starting to think about these things or they're thinking about them for their parents or whatnot? Yeah, I get a lot of uh, questions about, well, what's appropriate from a Catholic standpoint? Is hospice okay? Is palliative care okay? Is the, is not wanting that chemotherapy anymore okay? Yeah. What is, what's okay? Yeah. Uh, and all of that is okay uh, in, in the proper perspective. Why don't we talk about specifically hospice care? Because my... My pops, he that was really hard for me. He uh, was in and out of the geriatric ICU uh, here at uh, Memorial Hermann. He was like all these things. We brought him. I, I barely knew my family members. He's the only one of my relatives that I knew. And um, I'll never forget we're in the geriatric ICU. My dad walks over. And he goes, can I see you outside the room for a second? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I walk outside and he goes, so the doctor is going to come back in a moment. And she wants to know what our wishes are. And he's like, so I need to know from you, talking to me as Mr. Catholic theologian guy, he's like, what does the church teach? And I immediately start talking about what the church teaches about end-of-life issues and, like, what constitutes extraordinary care versus ordinary care. Ordinary care is required. Extraordinary care is not required. And so I begin, you know, like, all these different things. And then I realize halfway through, I am deciding the life or death of my grandfather. And all of that was a very sobering reality for me at that moment. And he eventually went, was stabilized, transferred to hospice care up in Conroe. It was the greatest decision for us. The nurse that took care of him, I saw her twice. She remembered me a year later. You're Tom Minogue's boy. Yeah, Mike, right? And I was like, holy moly. I literally met you for like five minutes. So, um, what, yeah. So what, what would you say for someone considering hospice? I, I think if a... I believe that if a patient's condition, despite best efforts, continues to dwindle, uh, and that is pretty obvious that that's going to be the natural course, hospice is usually around a six-month survival time expectation, and the real idea behind hospice is not to go to heroic care. It doesn't mean no care. It means... No heroic. I'm not going to go back to the hospital, put you on life support, and we are going to do the best we can, keep you pain-free, keep you symptom-free, support you, make your life as worthy as we possibly can. Yeah. We don't that, – that's very realistic and very worthy of, of, of a hospice endeavor, and that's, that's very good. What um, a lot of people feel hospice is, well, just put them in the corner and don't do anything and then just yeah. let them pass away. And that's really not what it is. The idea behind end-of-life issues is really almost a parallel track of physicians and active medical care. And when it's going well, there have been patients on hospice that have actually rallied and been able to get off hospice. And that's wonderful. There's others that continue to dwindle and mm-hmm. pass away. Yeah, like my grandfather. This parallel track of the two kind of being together is is the ideal scenario. The other side of this is that families know their loved one better than most everyone else, including physicians or caretakers. And intrinsically, we tend to know what our loved one would want. Uh, they, we get into, well, I want my loved one around forever, so do everything. But when they really do end up in an intensive care unit on a ventilator, they look at that and they're like, I don't think mom would have wanted that. When patients really have a sense of what they would like to have and and 
as far as an end-of-life directive, they need to let their loved ones know that face-to-face, make it no ambiguity. Living wills can be somewhat helpful. Um, if you have someone specifically that you know would do your wishes because they know you well, usually a medical power of attorney is the is the best route to go with that. Yeah, because living wills can be challenged in court like crazy. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, and the Catholic Church offers really good directives and understandings of these things. Yeah, I mean, I when when my uh, when my father passed away, the so I got to the hospital like literally an hour before the doctor came in to tell him uh, that he had days to live, and this was you know I had my dad and I we had a good relationship, but a distant relationship, particularly the last ten years of his life. So I felt really honored to get to be there in that moment um, when the doctor came in and, and said that. Um, but then it was very quickly it transitioned from hospital to hospice. And actually, I'm really thankful for those last eight, eight days of, of hospice at home um, because it gave, uh, it gave back to our family and to me and my dad personally on you know, a lot of um, – not that you can make up for lost time, but you can certainly heal. Uh, a lot can heal. A lot can heal in, in those few days that you have left. And, and you know, being able to call up uh, his, his priest over to bring him, you know, uh, viaticum and, and anointing of the sick and all that sort of stuff. Um, I, for someone who should have probably a lot of, of maybe daddy issues, maybe I do, Gomer's looking at me like yep. you do. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, looking at that, I'm able to move forward in my life um, because of that experience of hospice and because of those last eight days. So it's funny to me because the hospice is obviously ultimately for the patient, but the residual effect can also have uh, a a very positive impact on the family um, and a healing impact on the family, which is important for your own health moving forward, your mental health and and everything else that goes along with that. Because the one thing that I remember from my uh, time at at Franciscan, I never took those classes that you took, Gomer, because I wasn't that smart. But uh, I still aren't. (laughs) (laughs) I did take a theology of healing class. And the one thing that I learned in that theology of healing class was that so much of what people take on, it's there's, there's a, a great need for generational healing. Um, and that's something that people don't realize is that you, 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 I guess you, you literally inherit not only just like physical things, but the emotional things that become and manifest themselves as physical things later in your life, long after maybe your own parents have passed away or your siblings or whoever, um, it's all so interconnected. And that's why these things are important. The end of life issues for, for someone in your family can impact your own health after they're gone. But also notice that in those uh, moments, having uh, having the sacraments at the end of of life for the for the patient when it's important to them also vicariously really does affect the family. I've seen those things really connect families uh, again, where they may be distanced from the church or whatever. But when it's important to you know mom and dad who's ultimately failing. Ultimately, it's important to family, and it does bring people back and reconnects in, in remarkable ways. Uh, yeah. I've got lots of stories about yeah, that. Yeah, I think in America, we because we're such a youth-oriented culture, in America, I think we have several bad things going for us. Like in the ancient world, and by ancient, I mean all of human history up till about 100 years ago. In the ancient world, we revered elders because that's how life, knowledge, wisdom, everything was transmitted. Now we revere only our peers. There's a wonderful book that Brian Jones, uh, coordinator of liturgy, director over my dead body, uh, (laughs) 
he uh <laughs> speaking of which uh there's <laughs> an end of life issue right there um no he uh he recommended this book to me it's called hold on to your children it's a parenting it's a psychology sociology and kind of philosophy of how we've shifted from a parent-oriented, elder-oriented model to a peer model. Why are kids committing suicide? Why, are, why is this all this anxiety and depression? Because they're learning how to be adults by their peers who are not adults. And that's so deadly dangerous. And we think for the last three generations, well, i got to let my kids be, you know, give them the smartphone and let them spend more time with their friends because that's how they become independent persons. And that's not true. That's how they become broken adults and delayed adolescents the more time they spend with adults. And the guy highlighted certain things, and one of them was our relationship with the family doctor has so changed because it's been commoditized and corporatized, as everything does in a capitalist culture, we just commoditize. We assign everything a dollar value. So you have a youth culture that's detached from a elder culture, right? You have a fear of dying and a commoditization of death so that people now in America, we don't see dying, right? It's behind a drawn curtain. It's an old folks' home on the other side of town. You know, it's all of these things that we have. Or it's on netflix or it's on netflix right it's it's commoditized even to the point of a a television show we don't experience it whereas for people up to a hundred years ago your elder died in your home with you so and that's one of the beautiful things about hospital hospice care is it's not exactly a hospital room though care is being administered you it it felt warm when you walk in and i I mean that's powerful people i've said this multiple times the 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 day that my dad passed away and and literally the the moment the hour and the minutes was one of the most spiritual experiences of encountering christ and the blessed mother and the saints incarnate in that room and the angels in that room uh it was powerful now you know, from the outside, maybe an atheist would look at that and just say, well, you're just an overly emotional person or whatever, to which they might be right. But uh, <laughs> see, father wounds. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but no, but truly, I mean, that it, you know, it, it's right up there with adoration for me in terms of experiences in my life or the best mass I've ever attended where I was totally focused and, you know, the whole thing. Um, it, it's a powerful, powerful moment. Your comment about uh, people not being around death and dying much uh, is true. Several months ago, my son, who, um, you know, we've got a very close-knit family, uh, asked me one time, he goes, well, how many people have you seen die? I didn't think about it, but hundreds. I'd be, that's well, just what yeah. I do. But but he was he made the comment that he had never seen anyone pass away. And he's... 30. It was a remarkable uh, eye-opening thing because, as you mentioned, Stephen, uh, those end-of-life events can be really powerful personally uh, and gives us, as a church, the bigger picture of end-of-life and and what's beyond that. All of us are going to be sick at one time or another, and all of us are going to be there at the end of life sometime. Those are those are important spiritual events, and uh, well, and and I've always heard this, and maybe okay. Again, I've never read a medical journal, as you can tell. But um, another thing that I've quote unquote heard is that uh, <laughs> they say they say whoever they are um, that uh, the doctors that that deal with end of life issues and that sort of thing that a lot of them will will kind of say that those that are the most spiritually grounded, oftentimes like devout Catholics and things like that 
handle end of life better than someone maybe who is of no faith or any sort of background. Can you confirm, deny, kind of what's your opinion on that? My my wife has a, probably the perfect uh, analogy there. She's a RN and worked in several areas of hospital for, for many years. And her take was that the physician treats his patient's end-of-life issues as he is comfortable with his own. Oh, wow. Those good... that mm. that have a devout uh, faith life or understand that end-of-life uh, battle and, and uh, you know, restoration on the other side, um, I think handle end-of-life places differently. Not... I mean, I'm not saying they're bad docs. It's a, it's a, it is a difference of perception, but it's critical, I think, at those end of lifetime. Well, it's just like for me working for the church, like when I have someone in my life die and I go to uh, a 20 minute memorial service, you know, versus going to a funeral mass. They're different. There's, it's so different. And I tell people all the time, like when we go to the mass, we're not there to celebrate the deceased in the same way that uh, secular people have their funeral rites. We're not even there to canonize them. We're not there to canonize them. <laughs> that, that was a whole episode. That, that we was had. a whole episode. We're not there to <laughs> please see episode like eight or something like that. Um, yeah, we're not. Like we're not there to do that. We are there to worship God together because they belong to the body of Christ. Yeah. And it is it is a powerful experience if you understand what you're going into. And I do think so many Americans, and I said this before, I dated this girl, Annie. She was she was awesome because she was in this class while I was taking the sexual medical morality class. She was in a sociology class, death, dying, and bereavement. And so we were talking about end-of-life issues, and she said, I said, man, when I die, I just want to go quick. And she goes, after watching dozens of people die, I never, I want to die slow. I want it drawn out. I don't care if it's painful. I want it to be drawn out. And I was like, oh, why? I was like, it was just like weirdly blunt. And she said, because so many people are afraid of death that we don't know how to have. She's like, I watch it. They don't know how to have the conversation. The family members in the room, when death is imminent, a day, two days, an hour, no one wants to bring it up. So the dying person feels so alone. That they're unprepared. And she said, I want to have a prepared death. I want to say my sorries and my goodbyes. And I want to make sure that all the documents are signed and all the, you know, and they know where my health insurance papers are. Like, they know where all this stuff is. And so I can say I love you and goodbye to every one of them. And she said, and I've seen both sides. And the saddest ones are those who go quickly and the the people with them don't know what to say. And that's, that to me, that totally changed death. I agree. I mean, even like with, with my dad, the last person that came down to see him. So all my siblings got there and, you know, and his siblings, uh, but my uncle who lived out of town, he was the last person that kind of my dad didn't get to see all the cousins had come over everything. Um, and when his brother got there, uh, it was like right after that, his brother like left, he kind of went into that. I don't even know what you would call that state, but where they're not really you know, they can hear you and then kind of mumble things, but it's definitely kind of on that final, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say decline cause, but that final transition into eternal life. Um, and so it was, it was just interesting to me. That was, I remember that poignant moment. I was like, wait, he waited for every single one of his loved ones to get here 
before he started to uh, the, his body started to transition into that final moment. And then, sure enough, the next day it was when he passed. Um, but that last twenty four hours, he wasn't really. We couldn't have that same type of conversation. Wow, that's with him interesting. Yeah. Up until his brother came, his brother came, and then it was like an hour later, things started to decline. Yeah. I frequently ask at those end of life times, well, how long does mom have? How, I mean, give me some time and a time frame. And it's one of the things that I almost never responded to because I was invariably wrong. I would see patients who looked like they'd be gone and dwindled within hours, rally and do okay for a week or two weeks. Others you thought that would be doing okay would go very, very quickly within an hour. God has yeah. his time. That's all I know from experience. Yeah. And, and it's not like we know every single thing about science and the human body that we can. And, and those episodes accurate. where somebody would rally until a loved yeah. one comes in is not uncommon. Also, yeah. tragic episodes where yeah, someone passes away really quickly and doesn't able to, not able to say much of anything. Um, and uh, th- those need a lot of uh, love, care, and support, too. Yeah. But I did want to talk about one last thing that I think is so important, especially for those of our parishioners who are dealing with chronic pain, maybe terminal pain, uh, people who are suffering, people who are dealing with intense illnesses, the sick. Uh, Your life is not on hold. Your life is not on pause. And your mission and ministry in the church is not either. Could Could you say some of that about the sick? Absolutely. This is uh, near and dear to my heart as well. Uh, It is a common feeling of those that are chronically ill uh, that they have no purpose, that they're just a burden, that they just don't uh, have the wherewithal to do anything of substance. And it can be very depleting for them emotionally and spiritually. But the ministry of the sick, and we will all be there, is really amazingly powerful. Um, The intercessory prayer of someone who is ill for another is remarkably powerful. And it gives uh, people a real purpose also. Um, I think think that is a, a key component to... Uh, dealing with with illness, we, we are physical, emotional, spiritual beings. Uh, certainly, the spiritual, from a theological standpoint, is on a higher plane. But our, we do have meaning even in our physical discomfort, our physical issues. Uh, there has to be a purpose, a a, uh, a bigger picture than just suffering for suffering's sake. And yeah. I believe that that uh, understanding of redemptive suffering, that suffering when tied to Christ, really can be uh, personally helpful because of grace and the endurance that needs to get through that, but also from an intercessory prayer standpoint that the church needs it, that our families need it. It's an incredibly powerful ministry. Yeah. It, it is essential to uh, the Catholic faith and the church in, in, in that area of your life. Yeah. Pope John Paul had two really great documents. I want to recommend everyone out there, especially if you feel sick and suffering. I mean, uh, scripture says that those who are suffering have ceased from sin, that suffering can be, as mother Teresa said, the most tender caresses of Christ crucified. You don't feel that, right? You feel the pain. It's, it's acute. It's there, but it doesn't define you. Right. And the beautiful thing is the message of the cross is even more real, that God did not shrink from suffering. So your suffering is not just meaningful, it's powerful. And Pope John Paul II, in his um, 
document on the role of the Christian laity. So our role as lay folks and, and its relationship with the clergy. Christy Fidelis Leachy. Nailed it. Yeah. Christy Fidelis Leachy. Um, he has this line where he has this whole chapter called You Too Going to My Vineyard. It's a story of a guy going to the marketplace and he gets people at the first hour of the day, the third, the sixth, the ninth, and then at the eleventh hour he sends in people. And the Pope masterfully breaks that down and shows it's not just the young and healthy that are being sent into the vineyard, the Michael Gormley's of the world. <laughs> it is also uh it's it he especially the eleventh hour he talks about those who are near death, those who are um limited by suffering in all sorts of ways, and I think it is a masterful job and, and it's the shortest of the of these two that i'm going to recommend of explaining that your mission now is different it's not done it's different it's not done, so if you are sick and suffering, if you are struggling with emotional wounds as well, I mean some of y'all we have mental illness, like I remember someone saying, you know if I break my arm, everyone rushes to sign my cast. If I tell my friends I'm depressed, they don't know how to deal with me. The mental anguish, suffering, mental illness these are real sufferings that you can offer up. The other one is called diet. And, and, yeah. and to remind us, there's a lot of people in our parish, in our community, but in our parish community specifically that are suffering with yeah. these. Yeah. That we would have no idea seeing them on Sundays. Yeah. Sure. And there's no test or lab test or x-ray that's going to give you the diagnosis of what they're going through. And there's no medication necessarily to help them through that. That's where that spiritual connection the life of the church really is balm to those uh, to that suffering, and uh, as a physician, we need to embrace that. Yeah, and the last one is an encyclical by Pope John Paul. Specifically, the entire thing is on suffering, redemptive suffering, the role of suffering in the church, called Dives and Misericordia. And I really recommend it. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, I'll dig them up and send them to you. Um, but they're powerful, prayerful, beautiful, and they don't gloss over the painful reality. Like, I think sometimes it's like, grin and bear it. You know, Jesus loves you. Offer it up. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than finding meaning. Archbishop Fulton Sheen used to drive by, when he would drive by hospitals um, in some town or whatever, he would look at the hospital buildings and he would say, um, there's so much wasted power here. Because people, they, they just are, you know, we're just in a rush to have some degree of health and symptom free and he's like yeah but you could also offer it up right and in a powerful way i i agree and uh obviously from physician a physician standpoint we want to improve people's suffering as much as can and, and as yeah. church asks us to do that yeah uh but i think we certainly need the church we certainly need yeah. the understanding of the broader picture for the ultimate multifaceted what is health and yeah. uh yeah, that, we don't even understand what health is anymore. It's a whole philosophical discussion. We can yeah. get into it another time. Nice, <laughs> nice. This has been awesome. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this, uh, and I think personally, as I sat here and listened, I've actually grown uh, in my understanding. You know, I I thought I had it all figured out through going through the experience with my dad, but I think there's even more. There's more to unpack. Obviously, yeah. I mean, you know, this is. Uh, I, I think, like you said earlier in the episode, is that we really don't know or understand death as a society anymore. Yeah. Um, and we, we, we shouldn't be afraid of it. Yeah. It's a, it's you are not worthless thing. because yeah. you're suffering or because your life is ending. It makes a lot more sense why uh, the, the old phrase in the church goes, memento mori, brother, remember your death. Yeah. Um, 
was said so frequently in the ancient times yeah. in the church and you go to the old churches in Europe and, and stuff and it's even, you know, yeah. in mosaics and painted in the doors. You, you go to St. Peter's Basilica and there is a huge death skeleton yeah. over one of the Pope's tombs and the whole point with his motto was Frater Memento Mori, brother, remember your death, right? It's the last four things. We're always yeah. called to keep the last four things, uh, you know, in in uh, the front of our minds as well as we go through the day. So Death, judgment, heaven, or hell. Awesome. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> happy Lent. There's no hallelujah. <laughs> happy Lent. You can't What's say that. What's to you? Oh, yeah. We're not in liturgy. Good doctor. Where can people find you? Where can people find you? If they want to learn more, we're going to have you here at the church. Everyone keep your eye out on the Adult Faith Formation page on the bulletin that Mary Beale so masterfully and prettily edits. Prettily? Beautifully. Beautifully. Prettily. Prettily. <laughs> it's the dumbest word I've ever That's said. That's why you're not the director of communications. <laughs> Good night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Where can people find you? Where can people find you? Sure, probably the quickest way to know about me is uh, under my website. It's uh, Animos, A-N-E-M-O-S, Animos Medical Consulting. Uh, Animos is uh, Greek for wind. I always have related wind as being sort of the breath of God. And I like that, uh, I like that analogy. So um, Animos Medical Consulting would be the best way to learn about me. Nice. Animos. All right. We're going to make a, the most of this podcast as we wrap up. All right. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <Cool. laughs> All right, y'all. God bless. Stay classy. Stay classy.